You're listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation podcast network, hosted by Blake Murphy 7 and Johnny Touchdown, all about your Arizona Cardinals. All right, hello and welcome in. This is the Revenge of the Birds podcast. Proudly being brought to you today over the phone as the venerable John Venerable, my co-host, is uh, out of town from his normal place right now, so we'll be mixing it up a bit. Uh, My name is Blake Murphy. I'm the other co-host of the Revenge of the Birds podcast. And uh, John, first of all, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for everybody who's bearing the uh poor quality of audio to to know of uh blake's fault uh i uh traveled by vehicle across country with my family to visit family in illinois from oregon so we drove 31 hours from friday to sunday night to get here uh to see family because we've been like most of you trapped inside for the better part of four months uh so i don't have my usual equipment i have ordered uh, a new microphone so next week's podcast, hopefully be back to your usual uh, quality here on the podcast. But this week, having to MacGyver it a little bit, but still wanted to, uh, to get some content out for the you guys. The biggest one of these things We're to talk about, obviously, would be the fact period, that, we do have some of course, it's the day about, after we uh, go over it, but the Cardinals quarterback, Kyler Murray, makes a decision to invite all of the skill players on offense. Uh, you're talking about all of the quarterbacks all four of the running backs, the wide receivers, the tight ends, uh, going all the way to Dallas, Texas, kind of his neck of the woods, uh, for essentially a little throwing session over four days and team bonding time. They'll be going to you know, Top Golf, uh, going to probably going bowling. Uh, it's kind of the closest thing you could have as far as a OTA replacement in that sense. John, let's talk a bit about this. Is something that Kyler decided to do by himself putting up all the money for the trip, paying it off at some $40,000 worth. Uh, pretty much everyone has applauded and celebrated this move. I think the only concern for the most part is, you know, the rising coronavirus tests, the fact that Texas isn't exactly a bastion of health, but then again, neither is Arizona right now, so getting out of the state may be a bit good. I feel like this was impressive enough that we could probably spend almost a whole show talking about this step forward that Kyler's taken in his development as a leader, not just on the field, but for this franchise in general. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be anxious to hear if they took Michael Bidwell's private jet or not, because you know they took a private jet. They're not going to be going through TSA on a, on a major airline. Um, so all the accommodations he put into place, you mentioned it, it's been well documented, roughly $40,000 of his own money uh, that he is putting together for just a four-day period. I mean, it's t- it, I, my guess is it's taking place, I think, from Sunday to Wednesday. We're recording this on June 24th. So if it it went off without a hitch, that means it's concluding today. But who knows? They may have pushed it back. I know that the NFLPA put out something kind of discouraging get-togethers like this. But you know who's not following those protocols? 
one Tom Brady, Tampa Bay Buccaneers are consistently getting together. These guys, ultimate competitors, like to push the envelope, and they know the importance of these get-togethers. It's not realistic to think that you can walk into a training camp without any kind of you know, physical workouts, touch points outside of Skype meetings and be able to pick it up enough in time for a season. Um, let's, let's put aside team building for a second. I mean, Kyler Murray has never worked with DeAndre Hopkins, period. Uh, they have a relationship through the phone, through, you know, meeting together beforehand, but never, they've never worked out together from our knowledge. This is the first time he gets an opportunity to do that. What about somebody like Hakeem Butler, who is coming into a pivotal year two, missed all of last season with injury, they, they need to know where he's at. Can he pick up mental and physical reps now after missing all of last year? Andy Isabella, your two player. They had, uh, we had big expectations for him. His role quickly became non-existent because he wasn't able to pick up the offense fast enough. enough. Christian Kirk missed time with injury last year. I mean, the timing and rhythm to get, to get things right with, with the skill players. Let's put aside the running backs. Let's put aside Brent Hundley. Let's put aside maybe Larry. There's so many young receivers with a lot on the line with this team in addition to Hopkins. I just think you're talking about Kingsbury wanting to implement more of his traditional four-wide receiver set. Well, that's going to take repetition. And I think kudos to Kyler for putting this together. I, I really just shows the kind of maturation process that he's taken. Isn't it really fitting, not to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but just everything that's gone on with Major League Baseball, the chaos, the, you know, just the egregious nature of that, that whole business right now, money hungry, who do you believe, owners or players. And that was Kyler Murray's destiny before he played that famous season at Oklahoma, winning the Heisman Trophy and route to the NFL. And the only news he's making lately is talking about social equality. And, oh, by the way, he's on his dime. He's flying all of his players out for, for a, a long get-together to, to, to team build and to work out together. I mean, it's just the tale of two sports and – it just shows you that he made, in my opinion, just the the overwhelmingly right decision. And every day that goes by, we just get one piece of news after another about just reasons to be proud that he's the quarterback of this franchise. Um, and will this will this get together have bearings on the fall? I don't know. I hope it does because I think that the the, the individuals that are making this kind of effort, making this a priority, are are going to see it pay dividends one way or the other. You talk about going into the second year under the same scheme, even though they've got some new faces, I think will help. But in comparison to like, you know, what Daniel Jones is going to go through with a second coaching staff in two years with Joe Judge, Joe Burrow, uh, you know, as a rookie coming in, no contact with any kind of peers. I mean, those are the people, those are the, that's why Brady's making it a priority now with Arians and his teammates, because it's a new system for the first time in forever. Kyler's in a position now, thankfully, that he's had this same system, you know, dating back to a little bit of his college days, his familiarity with Kingsbury. I, I think this is this is fine-tuning, this is team-building, this is making sure that they can pick off seamlessly where they left off a year ago once training camp hits, and, you know, outside of injury, I think they're just going to be in really good shape. Is been in lack of a leader at the quarterback position outside of a few times you talk about going back in the day of Jim Hart who was there with the team for a while they always had aging veterans it felt like uh, with Kurt Warner and Carson Palmer taking on those roles to be able to have a young guy who's just 
23 years old who's saying, I'm going to foot the bill for this for everyone to make sure all of the details are taken care of, uh, making sure that they can keep people distance. And we'll, we'll see what comes out on the other side of this, obviously, as far as if we you know hear of any other Cardinals players who do end up having positive tests. Uh, the fact that the NFL seems to be taking this seriously, albeit the uh, even PGA Tour is having issues. That's probably the most socially distanced sport that there is. So it's something where, at least in the most part, when you're talking about putting together a foundation block for the future, that's something that's very encouraging. Now, uh, I did do a little bit of checking. The team players who are in attendance are not really saying as much or posting that much on social media. Like you said, John, it's not something that's being advocated for by the NFL. It's, it's kind of something that's been going on. We got to see one post from DeAndre Hopkins when he had arrived in Dallas on his Instagram. And then about four hours ago, uh, I had to check for a few players, but a picture of Allen High School with, was on Eno Benjamin's Instagram account. Uh, you can kind of track that down and look back to Kyler's high school career. I realize it's the same high school. He was at the same stadium. You'd have to imagine that they're probably the only ones who are there at that high school stadium uh, working out together uh, or even maybe just taking a tour of the place, his old stomping grounds. I think that's probably one of those things where even though there's not a whole lot of news and things going on, uh, coming out of it, I have no doubt that it's going to be a better experience. And the fact that uh, Kyle is essentially showing a lot of that servant leadership that you ask for in your quarterbacks of, you know, he's going to be calling ahead, going back to his old place, making sure that they've got all the supplies and everything that they need there. This isn't some sort of team activity that uh, you're having the, you know, uh, trainer or having the equipment guys putting together for them. Uh, this is something that he's taking a lot of this on himself because he thinks this is going to make the Arizona Cardinals for this season better. And I think he understands how pivotal this year is also for the Cardinals uh, just because of the fact that they've built this team together. There's a lot of players not under contract for next year. A lot of guys they brought in who are in year two of their development. Uh, this is something at least where he's trying to make sure that amidst all of the other crazy things going on in 2020, that the Cardinals are not one of those teams that fails to take advantage of every opportunity you can to get better. And for that, I think hats off to the young guy. It does show for me a lot of confidence in this team after a Larry Fitzgerald is going to, you know, head off into the sunset and retire, get that gold jacket someday, that they're going to have at least leadership that will be able to take on and push the team forward. Because uh, right now, John, that was that was the biggest thing we did not see with Bruce Arians and their Cardinals coming out of that 2017 season. There was a lot of players we saw who left, like Calais, we saw Carson leave, and it didn't seem like that there was uh, that many players who were able to step up and take it to the next spot, whereas some of those guys like Calais Campbell and Tyron Matthew became those leaders on different teams so it's good to see the Cardinals finally being able to take that step forward and it's a step that I think is crucial at this point in their franchise history yeah absolutely they need those homegrown leaders that they've subsequently let go in previous seasons you mentioned uh, Tyron, Calais, I throw in Tony Jefferson, who was a very vocal leader in the locker room. They lost some to just kind of flaming out in the league, like a Rashad Johnson, who had their best time with the Cardinals. He's a tremendous locker room presence. And so that's why I think they've made such a priority to bring in the Devon Kennards of the world, the Jordan Phillips, to be able to be vocal in the locker room and not somebody like a Terrell Suggs who's looking for a paycheck 
Um, that's the wrong kind of personality that you want to blend in. So uh, I see Isaiah Simmons already becoming that individual. He's been at the Clemson protest consistently. Um, just the, the, the individual, the young man, just everything that we've seen from Isaiah is he is going to be, I believe, the Kyler Murray of this defense. Um, and so there are, there are plenty of reasons for optimism. These are lead by example players as, as well on and off the field. And they're in really good shape right now, assuming that we have a seamless NFL season, Blake. Definitely agree with that, John. Uh, we also have, I think, some uh, interesting news overall with the um, the rest of where the NFL is at. They're meeting today to go over a lot of the uh, social justice initiatives that have been kind of bandied about. The, the league and individual teams have kind of had their own separate uh, things that they've put forward. A lot of it obviously focusing on the fact that amidst everything else going on in 2020, there's been a large push to recognize the disparity, at least, with so many African-American players who do play the game of football. Uh, the Cardinals, at least, are one of those teams that has an African-American at quarterback, a lot of vocal players. Uh, a player like Fitzgerald, who I know we talked about on the last podcast, grew up in Minneapolis, which is the center of a lot of these items. What do you think we may be able to expect from... This season, John, amidst the idea of, you know, we're hearing that instead of having fans, there's going to be advertisements sold to the first few rows of each seat. It seems like they're prepping to not have a season with fans, but still replacing some of that revenue with advertising revenue. But as far as for more of the, the, the social justice aspects for that one, is it going to be like, is it, we're talking about breast cancer awareness month that they've done. Is there other different moves that they're going to make? What are some of the expectations that you might have for this upcoming season? And again, obviously this all assumes that things go according to plan. The NFL forges ahead and we're going to be able to have another season in that aspect. And there's a lot of concern. I know with some of the other sports with these bubbles being in place and, uh, even though there's definitely a lot of time to be caught up, we're, we're almost to July, John, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of teams being able to go into training camp and not having these tests suddenly start popping up left and right and potential for either having to shut down or move guys away. It just seems like we're still a little ways off, and I'll be very curious as to how that will happen. But what do you think about uh, that and what the league may do in the meantime with all of this? Yeah. Well, they've built in time to push the lead year back, I think, by two to four weeks if they need to. And I also think there's some truth to the idea that they're waiting for the other two major leagues, that be Major League Baseball, that has a start date now, and the NBA, which tips off here in a couple weeks, to start their season and to see what works and what doesn't work. Um, I, I really do believe it's, it's very much a wait-and-see process. I, I don't think that they want to delay, um, I was going to say, spring training um, this fall preseason uh, and training camp we're seeing right now on, on collegiate campuses across the country, um, you know, football players returning at the college level. That gives you some hope and some insight that if you take the necessary precautions, you're going to be able to do that. But as far as traveling during the season, the alignments of the division, will they, will they stay the same? Will they be quarantined? Like you mentioned it in a, in a remote place. I think everything's on the table right now. I do know we're going to have some semblance of football, and I think that they're hedging their bet right now with the increased advertisement. We've heard a lot, Blake, about the fact that the 2021 salary cap could be greatly affected by the lack of revenue that comes with ticket sales at the at the stadiums. And so, I to me, football, unlike 
baseball is such a TV product. Yes, you want the fans there. You want to feed off their energy, but it's built for television. I think that being able to maximize the ad capacity is a smart way to say, okay, we're not going to have to reduce the salary cap because we're going to get X amount of vendors to be able to put up money to be, you know, viewed with this many millions of eyeballs on the TV product. So I think that's a smart way to go about it because you're telling your players, we're thinking about you long-term. The league doesn't have to do that. Um, So I think it kills two birds with one stone. Now I'm not ready to eliminate no fans entirely. I think that they're doing that, you know, subsequently to get that ad revenue because, you know, if you're going to have some fans, but not all fans, you know, take away that opportunity for them to be in the first couple rows, just because that's, that's where you're going to be able to recoup some of these losses. And then if you want to have fans in the middle to upper decks, um, and you're able to do that with social distancing and, and masks if they, if they want, maybe they sign a waiver, um, you know, by all means, try, try to take advantage of that. But I also think they are desperately waiting to see what these other leagues do and, and learn from their mistakes. The NFL is in a very advantageous position, like we've said all offseason, in comparison to the other, other leagues. It derailed the NBA's postseason. They're having to pick it up on the fly. You're seeing players now like Avery Bradley, of the LA Lakers saying, I'm not doing this season. I've got kids with a compromised immune system. Will we see that at the NFL level? Will they be quarantined from their family? I mean, you know, whether or not you want to believe a vaccine is in route, I don't, I, you know, when it gets here, it gets here. But I just think this NFL season will be unlike any we've seen, but will be so starved, like for football. I think people, once, you know, the, the first Sunday hits, are going to be in a better place. You're going to have some, some inconsistencies. You're going to have some issues with quarantining. You're going to have players test positive, uh, and we're preparing for that. But as long as the league isn't all but abandoned this fall, I, you know, I'm at this point, how could you not just be ready to take whatever's in front of you? I think if you would have told fans back in March when quarantine started, when everything blew up in you know whatever that was, mid March, March 15th that the NFL season is going to go on, but it's going to be greatly compromised. I think people would have been up in arms. We've lived in this new reality for some time, for four months now. We've been adapting every day. Every day we get new information, uh, and we've come, we've taken it as, as it comes to us. And I think you have to do the same thing with the NFL. Expect football, but expect changes that you know are only due to the pandemic. This is a difficult time for everyone not just you know the regular everyday person it's difficult for the nfl as well we've already talked about coaches who are struggling to communicate concepts when you know you don't have any practice film there's only so much game film from the previous year that you can watch it's it's hard to correct someone's technique when uh, about all you can do is just put them in a one-on-one pass set at home and then just have them send in the video and be like, all right, look, uh, Max here, just you, you got to change your foot placement here, okay? There, that looks better. Like It, it just is difficult to work with, so uh, much more than other positions because of the fact that it is probably the most contact sport of maybe any contact sport outside of a, a game like rugby or something, which is obviously not something that's been picked up in the uh, United States. I think it, we were kind of reaching the point, I think, where as a lot of the reopening is happening and more people are uh, having to either see mandatory mask orders passed or having governors kind of doing different addresses as the number of cases is growing, there's a lot where I just feel like that we may be leaning more toward the NFL having to put together some sort of bubble similar to how the uh, 
similar to how the NBA is trying to function with their playoff buildup and everything, uh, there are going to be players, at least, who get cases and tests. Uh, we're going to end up seeing a lot of uh, that happening. It was just a question of, can you get enough where it can avoid that spread? And uh, for me, John, if it ends up being a case where the difference between getting football and not getting football this year evolve, revolves around getting over this pandemic entirely to make things better for everyone, I think you and I would take that trade off probably any day. There are things, obviously, as a football podcast, but there are things that are more important than football. We always want to make sure we never forget that. It's just a case of you don't want to just necessarily throw it out without saying, all right, let's give it a try. And if NFL is going to give their best shot and they still don't come up short, I don't think anyone's going to fault them for that. And the fact that there's so much confidence that the league is going to play this year, people keep telling it that it's going to happen, it's going to happen, has me thinking it's more likely than not that we are going to see football in 2020, even amidst everything that's happening. Yeah, and I, I also think that if, if the NBA and Major League Baseball have to abruptly stop, then the NFL still tries and they fail to complete a full season. I mean, what, what, what can you say at that point other than you just succumb to the reality that at hand, we just take it as it comes, we get through it, and we rebound hopefully in 2021, as, as bleak as that sounds. And again, I, Blake and I are of the opinion we're going to have football this year. Can you have college football? Can you have high school football with individuals that aren't paid to play and are, depending on their situation, could, you know, greatly spread the disease if they're, even if they're asymptomatic. I mean, it's just, it's, we just don't know enough about anything right now to be able to have a firm judgment on it. And look, golf is trying to take place as we speak and they're, they're botching a lot of what goes on in terms of, you know, their players and testing positive and spreading it around. And that's a non-contact sport that you think would they be able to greatly control football. There are so many different elements between not only the players, but the front office, the coaching staff, the medical staff, the training staff, you know, everything that comes into the NFL um, is just blown up times a hundred in comparisons to the other leagues. Um, that's why I think it's so frustrating for us who, who enjoy baseball to, to watch them bungle this situation when all actuality, they have the least contact of any sport. So, you know, at the end of the day, Blake, I, I you know, I'm optimistic, but I also, I, I've become kind of numb to a lot of this information just because who really knows at this point, Dr. Fauci can say, something one day and then something else the next day. And it's just like, you can manipulate whatever kind of message you want. But I mean, like as desperate as I want the season to go off, if they cancel it ahead of time, which I don't think they will, but if they did, what are, what are we going to say? There's the, they should have played. Well, we've got how many hundreds of thousands of people dead from it. So it's, a, it's an unfortunate situation, like you mentioned, Blake, but we're, we're of the mindset that they're going to play this season. It's just going to look a little bit different than in years prior. Plus, they've had many, many months. The, the NFL is so proactive in the sense that they change rules every year. They change them on the fly. They try things out. They evolve better than any of the other major sports leagues by a mile. Goodness, in comparison to baseball, it's like boomers and Gen Xers, right, or Gen Z or whatever. That they just they have an ability to take constructive criticism and implement it. They are always trying to make the game better. So if Roger Goodell and his team have had since early March, mid-March, to put together a plan. And I think that, you know, we've many people have doubted them throughout the duration of free agency and the draft. Those went off very well, better than I think a lot of people thought. And the NFL, this is something also that you have to keep in mind, and I'll end with this, 
they're not beholden to social media, kind of like what the NBA is. Baseball is in their own island. They don't care. It's, it's purely money-driven. But the NBA is very beholden of, of social media and the opinion of social media. Roger Goodell, if you haven't noticed in the NFL, they do not care what you know the minority public thinks. They're about, number one, they want to make money, and they want to put the product on the field, and they want the product to be the best that it can. Not in the sense that they'll compromise the health and safety of their players, but if they're able to maximize that, it's very similar to kind of what the UFC is doing. They're not worried about the court of public opinion because they know they're getting eyeballs on their product and their fighters want to fight and people are getting paid. The NFL, at a much, much larger level, operates that same way. Goodell and, 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 his, and his group of you know, individuals, his cronies, they, this, this is just business as usual. They'll, they'll find a way. Outside of a massive outbreak, I really do believe they'll find a way. Now, we might get Brett Hundley on a Sunday, and that's going to be really unfortunate, but it, at least I think we'll have Cardinal football. Yeah, I was going to say, everyone will remember the Strevler the Leveler game if it does ever get to that point. Um, you don't want it to, obviously. Um, some other news, at least, that we have, and this is some sad news, obviously, wanted to make sure we touch base on this, but uh, former Chargers draft pick and then a former one-time Arizona Cardinals center, Max Turk, unexpectedly died at the age of 26 uh, just two days ago. I wanted to make sure he sent out the thoughts and condolences to his family. Anytime that someone who's... Uh, just around that young, and it's unexpected. It's definitely a tragedy for each of those. Wanted to make sure that we mentioned. Um, uh, obviously, want to make sure we can respect the family's privacy at this time. There's been no other details um, related to his death. Uh, some other news to get to as far as the Arizona Cardinals is related. Uh, Football Outsiders released a list today that went over not the best teams of the uh, 2010s or of this last decade, uh, but focused, a lot of people talked about the worst teams in the 2010s. And wouldn't you have to know it that the Arizona Cardinals were the only team in the NFL that made that list twice. Uh, you saw the uh, top five teams in order were the 2018 Arizona Cardinals, the Steve Wilkes, Mike McCoy, Sam Bradford, Josh Rosen experiment. You had the second was the 2012 Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, it was another team that went and got the, earned the number one pick and took Eric Fisher the 2013 Jacksonville Jaguars. I believe that was the year before they selected Blake Bortles in the top three. Uh, the 2019 Miami Dolphins, just last year's Dolphins team, which somehow managed to scrape together, I think, five wins, still had a top five pick. And the 2010 Arizona Cardinals, which that one maybe would have been a little bit surprising to some. But if you think back to how the seasons went, the Cardinals had lost Kurt Warner, Entrell Roll. Um, they, I know they still had DRC at that time, but they lost a lot of their offensive playmakers and defensive playmakers. That was the year you saw Derek Anderson, at quarterback, John Skelton came in to finish the year. I can understand that being one of the five worst teams of the past decade. Uh, it was still interesting to see just how bad that 2018 Cardinals, the one and done team was, uh, that we got to see that entire turnover. What were some of your thoughts, John, on this? Because unfortunately for the Cardinals, the Seahawks, I think, had two or three of the best teams of the past 2010s. And in a lot of ways, I think that just shows not only how important it is to have a franchise quarterback, but you talk about Carson Palmer retiring in 2017 and Kurt Warner retiring in 2009. It shows how difficult it is to be able to replace a quarterback like that when they do retire and you do not have any sort of plan B sitting behind them. Yeah, you mentioned that 2012 Cardinal team and then those great Seahawks teams of the early to mid-2000s or 2010s, I should say, 
what happens when you intersect the eventual Super Bowl dominant Super Bowl champion 2012 Seattle Seahawks with that Derek Anderson, John Skelton, Max Hall led Cardinals of 2012 uh, with Hunt on his last leg? You get 58 to nothing. If you, if you remember that fateful outing uh, late in the year in Seattle. Um, but I want to really focus on the 2018 Cardinals. I think that, first of all, I think this is spot on. Blake, you and I have been doing this podcast for the better part of three years. but We've been following the team for decades now. And I am of the firm belief that 2018 Cardinal team offensively was the worst offense I've seen in my lifetime. Defensively, they were last or next to last in the league, but they weren't a historically great or poor, I should say, defensive team. Offensively, they were atrocious in every sense. And what ended up happening was Josh Rosen, it likely derailed his career altogether. Steve Wilkes is completely out of football right now, was the head coach of this franchise, one of 32 NFL head coaches in the world in 2018. In 2020, he can't get a job. He spent last year as the Browns DC. Nobody, he, from all accounts, he can't get a positional, um, a positional coaching job. Defensive backs is his specialty, unless he just is opting to sit out. The Cardinals are still paying him. And then we talk about Mike McCoy, who just – that was just such an egregious hiring. Everybody laughed at the hiring. Everybody laughed at the Sam Bradford contract, bringing him in. They were hedging their bet on so many players that didn't pan out, the Robert Kimdichis of the world. They let Calais go. They let Tyron go. It was just a perfect storm. Poor Larry had to endure that. Patrick, the leaders, the veterans in this locker room just could only look around and watch it just burn in front of them. So I am not surprised by that. And I also think people need to understand how poor that team was to better judge the job that Kyler and Cliff did specifically with that offense. I've said this like a thousand times on this platform, but it bears repeating. The, the unit that Kyler inherited and played for the majority of the season in 2019 was essentially the same cast of characters that had one of the worst offensive seasons in the history of the NFL. You can make an argument with the rules they are today. They were the worst offense in modern history. That's how bad they were. Kyler Murray comes in as a rookie. His first game ties the Detroit Lions, puts up over 25, 26 points, keeps them competitive and next to every game, nearly beats Baltimore in Baltimore week two with the same players that Josh Rosen couldn't cross midfield with a season ago, carrying an old and banged up David Johnson until Kime gave him a shot in the arm and traded for Kenyon Drake. That was really the only upgrade they got all season. Yes, the offensive line managed to stay healthy, but he was playing with a below-average right tackle. They upgraded a coaching, and they upgraded a quarterback, and suddenly what ended up happening, Blake, like you mentioned? You get the, you get the franchise quarterback right, and subsequently the, the head coach. They went from historically bad to, I think, 13th overall in offensive efficiency via football outsiders. That's Kyler Murray. That's Kyler Murray by himself. Now, Brett Hundley came in, did an admirable job in certain stints, but – Christian Kirk was on the team the year before, as was Larry. They took a plethora of wide receivers. None of them panned out this year. None of them made a huge impact. The offensive line was much of the same, although they were able to stay better. Excuse me, stay healthy. But even when DJ Humphreys and Justin Pugh played the year before, they did not play particularly well. J.R. Sweezy is an average 
sometimes a little bit above average right guard. And A.Q. Shipley is unemployed right now. What does that tell you? So I just I think that it is so important to look at the context of where that team was to where they came to. And I, I just think, yes, everybody's on the Kyler Murray train, rightfully so. I just think it's disrespectful not to highlight the job Cliff Kingsbury did with this group. I mean, I'm not going to swear on this podcast, but it's it's very much like making chicken, you know, into chicken salad. And now they've, they've made some sizable upgrades. We think they're going to upgrade at right tackle this year with whomever starts. They've got Hopkins now. Year three, Kristen Kirk. All the receivers they took from a year ago were back with a, with a full year under their belt. We like what they're doing at tight end. They found a, a diamond in the rough maybe late in the season in Dan Arnold. Everybody's in year two Cliff Kingsbury mode. They've got Chase Edmonds. they got Eno Benjamin to, to back up Kenyon Drake, who's motivated on a one-year deal. But I, I just think I, I'm, I'm putting that defense aside in 2018 just focusing on the offense because, you, I mean, you'd have to go back and watch every game. They were historically bad, Blake. Bad sounds right. I remember that was when you're talking about with not being able to get past the 50 yard line. It was just I think a one field goal in the Niners game where Josh Rosen before they had that two minute drill where he just scored two quick touchdowns at the end. And then you talk about the Rams game where it was the 34 zero that crossed the 50 yard line. You know, with time expiring on the clock. It was truly atrocious. For me, John, the, the surprise, I think, wasn't that that Cardinals team was so bad that they just cleaned house of pretty much everyone. Like, we could at least see that coming. It was easy to watch every Sunday how uninspired the play was. What was more surprising to me was that 2010 team ranking so low. And I think looking back on it, like, it's not that they didn't have talent. They had, you know... Fitz, Adrian Wilson, Darnell, Dockett, Calais, Campbell. They had guys like Kerry Rhodes who was on that team. Daryl Washington obviously was still on that team and hadn't had his suspensions yet. Uh, they still had Steve Breston, which granted, I think that that was his kind of beginning of his decline. Uh, you brought in at least a guy like an elegant fan, excuse me, Alan Fanica wasn't as impressive. Uh, you saw the departure of a guy like an Edger and James. Uh, really what I think it shows, John, is they had a 5-11 and record in that 2010 season. And I didn't realize how maybe bad the defense was. Because whenever we think back to that, we always point to that 2012 year of being the worst. We're like, oh gosh, that 2012 year, that was terrible. That was the worst. Really, this year was ranked worse than that. And a lot of it was just because the defense in 2010 was not great. Billy Davis was let go after the season was done. I remember Clancy Pendergast, if I remember correctly, was the uh, DC the year before. You brought in Ray Horton the following year, and then from 2011 to 2012, the Cardinals' defense was it was good. It, it showed essentially that there was a coordinator problem. Ironically, Billy Davis now back with the Cardinals as a linebackers coach, but I think that does go to show that when you're talking about some of the worst teams, it's not necessarily going to be just on one side of the ball. It has to be that both sides are just completely distracting, and that's what I think we saw in that 2010 season. What's interesting is when you look at last year, John, it was that same five-win record as that 2010 season for the 2018 Cardinals, but it was a team that, in a lot of ways, probably performed to about where the expectations were based on their talent level. That that 2010 team was a huge disappointment, and a lot of that comes from, you know, Matt Leonard was traded away, Derek Anderson started, they lost a lot of weapons on offense and defense, and they disappointed for how talented they were. We got to see that change on the defensive side in the next season. Uh, this is where I think it's a bit different, is you're seeing a team that is growing and moving forward and adding talent, 
Whereas on the other side, that 2010 Cardinals team is one that's subtracting talent. And that's where I think that the difference, at least for these two, John, is you're talking about a team that's on the rise versus a team that's moving down. And I think that's something that every Cardinals fan is, is encouraged about is to look at that. And I, I think it speaks to you can't just look at a team's record to determine how good they actually are. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about the 2017 Cardinals who had a, a plethora of talent, and or 2016, I should say, with how many Hall of Famers on that team. They had Tyron, granted, coming back from injury. They had Calais Campbell. They had, um, you know, peak Patrick Peterson. They had Carson Palmer. Um, they had peak David Johnson. They had a ton of good players on that team, and they only won seven games. Why, did, why is that? Because they underachieved from a coaching standpoint. Bruce Arians would likely tell you the same. So I think it's, it's very promising. The Cardinals, in my opinion, in 2019 were one of the least talented teams in all of football but were competitive and next to every game outside of maybe the New Orleans game and the Rams game late in the season. They're competitive and, and we're in every single game because the young players are improving and because Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury came and, and attempted to right the ship, which is still very much a work in progress. But you, you hit the nail on the head with that 2010 team and even the 2012 team. Listen, that 2012 team, most of those individuals were back the following year. They had one huge change, which was the quarterback obviously Bruce Arians, which kind of mirrors the situation from this past year. Then they brought in just a bunch of veteran free agents on one-year deals, right? Um, but that team had talent. I mean, it was, it, you were starting to see Patrick and Calais, those guys coming to their own. Darnell Dockett was still playing well. They brought back Dansby. So when we watched, the biggest frustrating factor was when we watched that 2018 team bring this full circle is not only were they horrifically bad, but it looked like, no, there was no, it, there was no saving grace. Even we thought to ourselves, well, Rosen's going to play on a bad team this year. Put him in, let him get his licks. We'll see some improvement. Josh got sub, just significantly worse as the season went on. He looked competent in those early games. Remember, he played pretty well at you know in San Francisco and had that bomb to Christian Kirk. They ended up winning that game. I think they've got some momentum. They just looked egregiously bad and unprepared the rest of the year, save for the Green Bay game. Um, and I think that that was the biggest factor for Kime and Bidwell, but it was on Kime because of the players that he had selected to take over for Kurt Warner, excuse me, Kurt Warner, um, uh, Carson Palmer, like a Rosen, didn't pan out. Robert Kimdichie taking over for Calais Campbell is one of the biggest errors in, in recent memory for this franchise. All of these contingency plans that Kime had put in place with these young players wasn't working. His free agency botched next to all of them. It was the worst 18 month stretch really of any general manager for the Cardinals in recent memory. Um, so I, I think that that was the troublesome spot. So when we would do these podcasts in the spring of 2019, leading into the draft and free agency, we would have to tell people, if you go back and pull those, those clips, if you've got time, it was, you have to look at this team as really an extension franchise roster, because that's how bad it had gotten. The talent was just, unlike 2010 and 2012, there were still good players on those teams that just needed to be coached up. And that, that happens around the NFL. You know, the Cleveland Browns were a poor team last year. They might have had a top five, top seven roster all in the NFL. They were so poorly coached, though, it didn't matter. The Cardinals in 2018 were horrifically coached, and their personnel was bottom tier. So they've essentially started from scratch. They've implemented, obviously, an entire new system, new quarterback, 
new players up and down. They went back to their traditional 3-4 defense. They brought in new coordinators uh, aplenty. And they built some consistency and some stability here over the last 12 months. And to your point, Blake, now they need to build on the, the additional layers of that. And so we get asked a lot, you know, when will this team be Super Bowl ready? And generally, the rule of thumb is if you ask people within the league, within the know, they'll, they'll tell you that you need to string together three really strong off seasons. So we like to think, even though a lot of their draft picks haven't panned out, from Kyler's draft in 2019, you hit the quarterback. So that's a successful off season in and of itself. We like what they did this off season, although we've yet to see the product on the field. Let's just say they've hit the previous two. I don't think many would disagree because people are generally picking the Cardinals to be a fringe playoff team. If the Cardinals can hit a home run in next off season in combination of free agency and the draft and fill the remaining holes that they'll have after this season, people will take them seriously as a legitimate contender. Um, and they hopefully will be able to build a sustained period of success. Think of the Chiefs and how they built from that 2017 to 2019 season uh, with hitting on the quarterback, which Cardinals took an extra year to get to that point, and then seeing with how they were already a playoff team. It's been very different as far as the talent acquisition goes, but you're right. Your goal is to try to be one of those playoff contenders that you have this year and the next year. Uh, copy what the Chiefs did. They went and swapped out D Ford for uh, Frank Clark, essentially added a Tyron Matthew on the defensive side uh, and got some more weapons to uh, help on offense. And there you go. You end up having the Super Bowl champion Chiefs and a Madden cover for Pat Mahomes. I will say this at least. You talk. I know we talked a bit about how coaching and that aspect is so important. It, like you said, John, it's the it's always the question of what's more important, the scheme or the talent. And I think really ultimately you can put in place a scheme, and if you don't have the talent to execute it, it's going to struggle. But uh, when you talk about how Bruce Arians would have blamed the coaching, I mean, I I look at that team, and that team was a, a top ten offense, a top ten defense and 31st ranked special teams and you look at Amos Jones he got hired after that Cardinal season to be the Browns special teams coordinator then after everything happened when Freddie Kitchens blew up he was still with Bruce Arian's staff as an assistant special teams coordinator this year now he's with the New York Giants so I I think you're right in talking about how some of the reason where things get bad is because sometimes there are teams who are just afraid to break that cycle of taking guys who fail somewhere and hoping that they'll succeed again in a second spot. Uh, There's a certain pattern I think we have to recognize with those guys, and that's been part of this entire Cardinals narrative is uh, taking on things that haven't really been done before. You've never had a college coach with a losing record like Cliff Kingsbury who's come into the pros and has gotten a lot of hype this offseason, showed that he can function and adapt. You've never had a quarterback as small as Kyler Murray go as high as he did in the draft to or even had a quarterback that your team took in the first round and moved on a year later. You've had some second rounds, some projects. It's just been something that's been a bit more unprecedented. And I think that's part of where, as a franchise, if you're going to grow, you do have to be able to take some risk to establish those bases, I think. That's what we've seen in a lot of aspects. And then you build on top of that as far as for team building. Uh, Let's go ahead and uh, talk a bit about one of the other things of news that broke earlier today. Uh, interesting, an ad from the NFL talking about the NFL Top 100 and who is one of the players that would be featured on there with a question mark of how high will he'll go. Uh, the whole campaign was built around the idea of, like, he's got drip. And it was talking about Kyler Murray. 
And the fact that they're advertising this already, they've got footage, player interviews have already happened. John, it seems like they're essentially saying that after his first year in the league, Kyler's going to be in this NFL top 100. It seems like he might be in maybe that 100 to 90 type range if it's going to be the first one that drops. But what are some of your thoughts on that? Because it was a little bit surprising to me to see that because most rookies usually don't get this type of attention. And uh, this guy's gotten a lot already. Yeah, and I think it just goes to show you how much respect he has. If you ever want to check Kyler Murray's Instagram post, um, typically, you know, it's something revolving around football, the team. Um, but go look at the comments section of the people that comment on his post. It's not just his teammates. It's acclaimed national players within the NFL. It is people who have cemented themselves as elite players in this league that already greatly respect his ability to play football at this level. And I think that has given him credibility because they've seen it done at the collegiate level, and now they've seen him carry a franchise, again, that was historically poor with the number one pick come in and make them respectable. And I think it's very much in the same realm of what Cam Newton did with the Carolina Panthers in 2012, the 20, 2011 season, I should say, in route to winning um, Offensive Rookie of the Year. So I, I think it's of the same um, category, stratosphere. And I would also say, too, you got to remember, you look at these rankings right now that a lot of these national pundits are doing in terms of quarterbacks. Pro Football Focus, or excuse me, Pro Football Talk, we always talk Pro Football Focus, Pro Football Talk, had Kyler Murray ranked, I think, 12th or 11th overall in terms of starting quarterbacks in the NFL. And you think, on average, we're generally going to get about 10 to 15 quarterbacks in this top 100. Just to give you some context, Carson Wentz was 96th last year, and he barely played at all the year before. I mean, he had gotten hurt, remember, and, and just missed a bunch of time. Kirk Cousins was 75, um, and, or excuse me, 78. A lot of people think, you know, he's just kind of a placeholder. Cam Newton, who didn't have a very good year, was still 87th. Uh, I, I'm not surprised at all by this, but I would like to just point something out that I think is interesting. Baker Mayfield a year ago was 50th. Remember, he didn't win Offensive Rookie of the Year. Um, his teammate Nick Chubb did, but he was still 50th overall. What does that show you? It's the, Even if you're a rookie quarterback, you can come into the league and people will take note if you're producing on Sundays. These, these are voted on by the players. This is not some kind of objective thing done by regional broadcasters or media. This is voted on by the players, and I, I don't think there's any doubt that the players believe that if you're starting a franchise tomorrow, putting positional value aside, he's one of the 100 best players in the NFL. So um, I, I, I think it's well-deserved. I think it's going to be one of many years within the top 100. Um, I think that he just missed making the Pro Bowl this year as a rookie, was, of course, a Pro Bowl alternate, uh, and then won the Offensive Rookie of the Year award. I think this is only the start of his accolades, and nobody should be surprised by it. I previewed his statistics on another podcast not too long ago. I, I just think you're projecting into the future. We're, we're talking about you know 4,500 total yards, 30-plus touchdowns. That's That's historically great, especially for this franchise, and Again, when you're elevating a, a franchise that has not had sustained continued success, 
it just hits home differently, I think, with players across the league. Um, the Cardinals are a middling franchise that has the most losses in, in NFL history. They don't have a Lombardi trophy. And they have never had a young, dynamic franchise quarterback that they've groomed. They've always gone the veteran route. Well, Kyler checks a lot of those boxes now that otherwise would not be checked by the likes of Josh Rosen or whomever. So it's exciting for this team to get the publicity they, they deserve now because they have – what it will do, Blake, also, is it will bring a lot of attention on players that are undervalued around the NFL. Chandler Jones kind of has made a mark now on being under undervalued, underrated. He even tweeted out, don't call me underrated. I think somebody like Buda Baker might be a little underrated now and getting him on national TV. Patrick's Patrick Kyler's ascension to NFL stardom only helps his, his teammates. And it's part of the reason, Blake, we haven't heard a peep out of Patrick Peterson recently in terms of demanding a trade. And that, I think that starts with number one. Way in a different uh, vibe that Peterson and others, I think, have this year about this team. Uh, he's been obviously very, very effusive in his praise for how good he thinks that they can be. And it's a good sign for the Cardinals moving forward. Uh, as we kind of wrap up a bit of a shorter show overall, I mean, it's the off season, and unfortunately due to COVID, there's not nearly as much news. Around this time last year, we were getting to hear more of uh, Keyshawn Johnson being the guy who stood out the most amongst the rookies, uh, hearing a bit more about some of the other uh, players that were coming in as well. Uh, hearing that it was probably going to be more of a pushback to his original spot for Buda Baker, all of that has kind of been stripped away and is gone now. Uh, one thing that does at least remain, though, John, is the fact that this team added a lot of talent last year, whether through the draft, some 11 players that were drafted or acquired via draft picks, as well as a lot of free agents and some other signings. You talked and went over some of your breakout players for uh, an article on Revenge of the Birds. If you want to look that up, we talked a little bit about it in our last podcast. I went and kind of followed up with some of that idea and went over kind of my list of who are the top sophomore players. Now, this isn't just sophomore as far as second year in the NFL, period. This is also second year with the Cardinals as a franchise. Guys who came in last year uh, were impact and are expected to be making a similar or greater impact this upcoming year. And, John, I think the top four are pretty easy to think of. I mean, you're talking about Kyler is obviously number one. Uh, you're going to have Kenyon Drake is going to be up there. You've got the right tackles. Uh, Marcus Gilbert coming off of injury. Justin Murray trying to see if he can win and uh, hold on the starting job, not just the swing tackle job. And then you've got Robert Alford, who didn't play the entire year. I think those are the four that are pretty much the obvious ones. The question, John, is of those four, how would you order them? Because I put Alford as my number two as far as the guy who I felt needed to be the biggest impact because I looked at that pass defense last year. I looked at the running game with Chase, with Drake, and I was like, I, I feel like the Cardinals need a number two corner across from Patrick Peterson more than I feel like that they need a great starting running back, even as much as an impact Drake had. What are some of your thoughts on uh, the importance of some of those second-year players who obviously don't have the pedigree that their starting quarterback has? Well, I would agree with you. I think if we, if you were asking me outside of Murray who we need to take the next step, it would be somebody opposite Patrick at corner. But w w in terms of realism and the options that I'm given based on the players, I, I, I would put Robert Alford likely last of, the, of that group. And here's why. 
Uh, number one is he didn't play all last year, and he was inconsistent the year before, but still like opportunistic. Kenyon Drake was great in this offense last year. Should only be better this year with the familiarity he has with Kingsbury on a one-year contract, a prove-it deal. Cliff does not do running back by committee. If you're his guy, you're his guy, and then if you get a hurt, next man up. Kenyon Drake's going to have every opportunity, I think, to have a, a monster season. I, I looked the other day in a fantasy draft, the snake draft, he went 12th overall. And that's not of running backs. It's, oh, he went 12th overall in a snake draft for fantasy players, which is you just talk about your it's a booking for at least probably 12, 1300 total yards and double digit touchdowns. So I would put Kenyon Drake firmly at number two, just because I think that that's what's going to happen. Plus I think that they've upgraded their center position from a run blocking standpoint with Mason Cole. And then that leads me into number three. I think Marcus Gilbert, coming back from injury is it has a real chance to start at right tackle was their best offensive lineman before missing last season could be some growing pains but i like anything else with linemen you get first you get through that first month ask trent williams how this is going to go for him missing all of last year now it wasn't with injury you just got to get back into into playing shape get a feel for you know nfl pass rushes again i think there's a good chance at the end of the season if marcus, if marcus gilbert starts all 16 games it's going to be really good at the end of next year They've got, of course, two young guys that we like in the pipeline. But realistically, I think that that's how it's going to play out. The Cardinals took Byron Murphy 33rd overall, Blake. If Byron Murphy is not your second corner at some point this year, after playing all of last year, getting the primary reps, then that then you need to be ready to, to say that that pick was a borderline bust, in my opinion. You're taking somebody who essentially was a first-round corner, a lot of people thought was the best corner in the draft, you already probably dis- dismissed a lot of his confidence last year when you said, well, he's better off playing the slot. You know, we, we've got our buddy Walter came on the podcast a while back and made a great point. You'll take somebody 33rd overall to play him at the slot corner. You, you take him to be an outside um, corner playing press man, getting after these number one X and Y receivers. I need to see that, and I hope to see that, and I think I will see that from Byron Murphy this year opposite Peterson. Robert Alford, I think, can be a very serviceable player, and I'm excited to see his um, his recovery and his development in this defense. But I, he is part of, I think, you can move off of him now and or after the season without a, a huge financial you know, incentive, a financial hit. Byron Murphy needs to be part of that second group of, or second year players that make the jump this year. So I would just put, I would put corner behind quarterback in terms of the positional value that you selected in running back last, because I know Chase Edmonds can succeed in this offense. I saw it and we're both high on Eno. But in terms of the players that I get to pick from, Byron Murphy, I think today should be better than Robert Alford. On, on June 24th, 2020, a spry Byron Murphy who's had a chance to play the entire season under Vance Joseph, he ought to be pretty good this year. And I think he will be. And I also think that the two players I listed ahead of him are veterans that have have a, a proven track record. I don't know what I'm getting with Robert Alford. I mean, he's he's been a non-factor. We haven't seen him since they signed him. So I think they'll hopefully get a sense of that at training camp. But, I mean, he's kind of been the, the – kind of the forgotten man and I do think Blake they're going to be looking at corners specifically this this preseason as as a position that they need to address with one or two more veterans they didn't add one to the draft we thought if the kid from where was he the kid from Ohio State 
fell to them. It's been so long since we had the draft. I'm forgetting players now. Um, fell to them at eight. They would have definitely taken them, which would have been the right decision. But they still need to add some depth there. That could be a position that they really flood next offseason, especially if they let Patrick go. But I, Byron Murphy, this time next year, needs to be cemented as the guy or one of the guys as an outside corner. If not, we've got another Hassan Reddick on our hands. Yeah, I, if you wanted to put Byron Murphy as the number two guy there and swap him with a Robert Offer was, no, no problem with that at all. No problem. And in fact, it might even be more important for him to take that next step because, like you said, John, Patrick and Robert both have their deals up at the end of the year. They're both going to be approaching 30, which is, of course, the wrong side of playing the cornerback position, as we've seen in a lot of cases in the NFL. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if the Cardinals are going to want to pay what Patrick wants, if they're going to have to try to do a franchise or if it's even going to be a franchise and trade if Byron doesn't step up this year then you're going to be talking about not just having to replace one position or two positions like you don't want to ever get to that aspect so I think his development and I've seen left that first year that I feel a lot of confidence uh, that he can at least take that step I think the big question is going to be is it going to be more of him cementing himself as you know number three for this year you got the veteran that's there he takes over as like the number two or number one next year just kind of moves along or are we going to be talking about okay we thought he was going to be taking this jump maybe there's going to be a few issues that we didn't see uh for me john if he's going to be in the slot i'm i have no issue with it there's a lot of great slot receivers you talk about guys even in the division like the tyler lockets Uh, you talk about having to potentially guard some of these tight ends in the slot you talk about how much uh, the rams would run guy like cooper cup out of the slot I, I don't think that it's a wrong way but like you said if you're taking this player 33rd overall he's gonna then have to be like one of the top three slot corners in the NFL you'd hope that he could be maybe the best one then that would be the whole case if you don't want to get yourself into a spot when you've got versatile players like Buda Baker like a Jalen Thompson who are a, uh, even a heck like an Isaiah Simmons for crying out loud who could cover those positions that's where I think that it's going to be interesting to see how his development goes this year. He's definitely one of the top camp stories. Uh, and then for me, afterwards, the list after that, as far as I tried to make a top 10, find out who is the other guy who needed to step forward out of all of the other players who are in their year two at the Cardinals. Uh, you can read the rest of the article for some of them. The one that was interesting to me was it came down to a choice between two players who were probably about as opposite as it as it could get to you're talking about Andy Isabella their second round pick from another year ago who didn't have much of an impact on the field outside of some I think it was was it two or three big catches and then the other one was surprise surprise Dan Arnold the guy who came in in the last three games of the year ended up catching I think it was seven passes or so but ended up with a total of a hundred plus something yards uh, had a touchdown against the Browns where he got to show off some of the you know jump up and get it uh, had one catch for 20 yards in the Seahawks game. Uh, and then in the end of the season, he had four out of six catches for 75 yards against the Rams. Uh, John, this is the one that I kind of struggled the most with because I feel like that with the Cardinals, with Cliff, with wide receivers, that was what the Cardinals were lacking last year. They had a good tight end in Max Williams. Charles Clay did a fine job. He's still out there if the Cardinals wanted to bring him back. But to have a mismatched weapon with that athleticism, that's something that Kyler and Cliff, we've seen them make use of that before. We've seen that with Jason Morrow and the Texas Tech offense. We've also seen that in the uh, in the, Cardin- in the Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray in college with tossing the ball to Grant Calcaterra as kind of that 
mismatch up the seam or a big guy in the red zone who can outleap these smaller safeties or corners. The fact that we also heard Peter Schrager talking him up, at least, I think we mentioned this about a month or two ago, it was kind of a toss where my heart said, yeah, we should go with Andy Isabella, but my head was also thinking, you know, if the Cardinals can just get another one of those receiving tight ends, like we've seen with other guys, it doesn't have to be a George Kittle, doesn't have to be a Zach Ertz, but just a guy who can go out and receive and be good enough as a blocker to be at mismatch weapon, I think that would be something that could elevate the Cardinals to a different level. Um, even if you're talking about Andy Isabella being able to finally develop as a deep threat. What are some of your thoughts on some of these Cardinals year two players? Because I know a lot of people right now are concerned that Isabella did practically nothing his first year, and it seems like he's going to be the wide receiver four to open the year, and that doesn't take into account the fact that the Cardinals are probably not going to run as much 10 personnel this year, so who knows how much he'll see the field. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on some of those other second-year offensive players uh, maybe even like a Hakeem Butler or Keyshawn Johnson as we kind of wrap up our podcast today. Yeah, I think you guys, we need to be very careful with what Cliff Kingsbury and the, and the coaching staff say at a press conference and in public and what inevitably happens on a Sunday. Because I think it's consistent with head coaches across the NFL. If you, if you talk somebody up, and this is not Bruce Arians, who, who will tell you what he thinks and then back it up on a Sunday. You know, Cliff will tell you everything is glowingly, you know, great with Andy throughout Monday through Saturday, right? But you get on Sunday and he sees limited snaps. That that really tells me what I need to know with his actions. Andy was not ready to play last year. They overvalued him in a draft that was plentiful and impact wide receivers. Do we do we want to say that they missed on the position? No. But it's unfortunate right now because not only are you going to compare him to those under individuals in this draft class, you then had to turn around and make a move for DeAndre Hopkins. Now it worked out where the compensation was more than fair and you were able to unload David Johnson. But if, if Andy Isabella balls out this past year, Christian Kirk played better than he did and eclipsed a thousand yards, they probably don't make that move. Maybe they do, but likely not. Then you've got Hakeem Butler, who fell in the draft. Now we've seen potentially four injury concerns and or inconsistencies in his game. He was not good in uh, training camp leading up to his injury. He wasn't. Um, and that's probably the reason he fell in the draft. A lot of people thought he was too raw initially to make the leap. Hopefully he's been able to reassess into this year, come in and make some kind of an impact, particularly in the red zone. The Cardinals, even with Hopkins and Larry, do not have a lot of size at receiver. Dan Arnold's Hopefully you fill that role in the red zone. Hakeem Butler has a chance to really cement himself as a red zone target for Kyler Murray, having a benefit and hype over even Hopkins, Isabella, Keyshawn Johnson, and Christian Kirk. Keyshawn is the most interesting because he was the, by far the most consistent. Go, go back and watch the preseason game three, and then also watch week two against Baltimore. Very impressive, making a lot of contested catches. And again, play special teams at a high level. So you're talking about a guy in the sixth round chip on his shoulder. I'm not ready to count him out at all. What if he comes out and beats out Isabella? Then you're really in trouble long-term, right? They were ready potentially. And a lot of fans thought they should double up on receiver and go receiver in the first round this year. Had they done that, it likely would have meant the end of Isabella and or Christian Kirk this time next year. So I am optimistic, but at the same time, we need to see it early. 
We need to see Isabella pop at practice. We need to see him make big plays in the preseason. We need to see him have a defined role that was non-existent last year. He needs to be at least a Tavon Austin-esque role player this year to be able to justify that pick, that late second-round pick that, oh, by the way, they got for Josh Rosen. Now, the rest of the draft class, you know, you say what you want. Deontay Thompson was beat out straight up by Jalen Thompson. Jalen Thompson's a better free safety than Deontay, but Deontay was also a fifth-round pick. If Deontay can carve out a role for himself on special teams, that's still going to be a good pick. I talked about Byron Murphy already and the, and the, the weight that he has this year. I would also say Zach Allen needs to show something. They've added Jordan Phillips. Michael Dogby was also around last year. Now they've got Richard Lawrence and Leke Fotu. They flooded that position with young guys. Corey Peters and Jordan Phillips are going to play. You, you're going to have a lot of different fronts. Chandler Jones may put his hand in the ground. Who knows? I still think they need to go out and add another pass rusher, which would diminish time that Zach Allen would get on top of that. But I do think that he was consistently making one or two plays per game enough to show me that last year he can play in the NFL. I don't know if Andy Isabella can play long-term in the NFL. I hope he can. Can Hakeem Butler make the team? I don't know. So we need, bottom line, Blake, if Byron Murphy becomes a borderline pro bowler, Kyler Murray continues his ascension, they could whiff on the rest of this class. I don't think they will. And if we're including Jalen Thompson in this group, which he probably should be included with this year's draft class, then they're in really good shape. But at the same time, the Isabella pick to me is the, is the one that's under the biggest microscope because of where he was taken, who he was traded for, and the wide receivers that were taken before and after him. So that, that's my 2020 draft pick on the spot. Because, again, Blake, Byron Murphy played last year, and, yes, he had some rough outings, but he made a lot of good plays too. And, he's, and he, he came from a caliber of program Washington consistently competing for Pac-12 championships was in, the, was in the college football Final Four. Andy Isabel played at UMass. The competition level was poor to say the least. Everybody from an advanced analytical standpoint loved him. Can he play with the big boys? And that's why, thank God, they went and drafted from Power 5 schools, national powers this year in Clemson, right? They added a defensive lineman from the SEC. They took a, t- they took a right tackle that most people thought should have been a first-round pick, even though he went to Houston. I mean, they got they, they, they stopped being cute, and I think the Isabella pick might have spurned that, Blake. Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. Uh, obviously, when you're talking about drafting rookies, you want the year one impact. It just depends on where their career goes. And, you know, not to get too far down this whole aspect, but, you know, when we talk about, like, a guy like a Dan Arnold, you also have to bring up the opposite fact, which is we'll have guys who get hyped up like this every year. You, you mentioned it with Cliff talking all about how Isabella was doing well with where they wanted. Uh, I think back to with Bruce Arians saying he was going to give Andre Ellington, you know, 30 touches a game. I, I think back to when he talked about Levi Brown being, I think, even almost used the E-elite word at one point as far as being a tackle, and he was gone after three games with the team. So it's always a say that there's potential for all that but like you said John it has to be played out on the field your hope at least is that the Cardinals will be able to have enough hits on some of the players um, that you'd look back and say hey you know Josh Rosen Isabella it's a sunk cost we just got to find a right player and move on they spent a second to get DeAndre Hopkins in part 
because they didn't have that pick that worked out. So there'll be something to watch as far as with the rest of the news with camp, if there's going to be any other uh, news. I, I don't know if there's going to be even anything that leaks out of the throwing sessions that Kyler has. My guess is it'll probably be people asking him just all about DeAndre Hopkins. We'll see how it goes for each of those things as well as the upcoming training camp. But uh, that'll about wrap it up for here on this episode of the Revenge of the Birds podcast. Again, this is the last week I think we have this podcast out. We've got several of those charities that we've talked about. Uh, you can go back and re-listen to our previous interview with the former Cardinals uh, player, Patrick Scott. You can go ahead and listen to the other last episode. Uh, every download that we're having this month, all of the proceeds that we're making from this podcast, we are going to be donating to several charities to be able to help uh, the aspect of that Black Lives Do Matter to be able to help some of trying to find a step toward this racial justice, toward equality, uh, as a lot of these things have come up in these national conversations. And as a lot of it's been centered at home, the Arizona Cardinals, each of these players have talked more and more about it uh, everyone from uh, Kyler to Mason Cole this last week uh, it's one of the conversations that we're seeing nationally so do make sure at least that you can go and we'll have all the information for those if you want to support it as well on revengeofthebirds.com uh, John as we log off for today where can our listeners find you and your content yeah we're at uh, here at the ROTB podcast uh, hopefully every week for the foreseeable futures we get closer to training camp you can also find us on revengeofthebirds.com in written form and you can follow us on twitter it's been a little down lately at johnny's touchdown um but hopefully we're going to have some football content some highlights some clips some good stuff to share i even saw a fantasy football article blake that made me feel good today so uh the season hopefully is inching closer um, and we've got two other seasons that are set to open soon in football, or excuse me, in baseball and basketball, which hopefully will make the transition a little bit easier. Absolutely. Thank you again for joining us, everyone. Again, you can listen to the Revenge of the Birds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google Play Podcasts, uh, other sites like Stitcher, Himalaya, iHeartRadio. Uh, recently, we were on a list and we uh, wanted to thank, uh, it was listed at number four, our podcast came in. So thank you to all of you guys, the listeners who come out, um, support us, interact with us, overall reader articles. Uh, we wouldn't do any of this, obviously, if it wasn't for you guys. So I want to give a big props to all of that. Thank you again for joining us so much. We'll check in uh, maybe in a few weeks. We'll see if there's any other bigger news that pops at first. But this has been the Revenge of the Birds podcast. Thank you.